Welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 535. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a most proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please visit their site, evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview I'm excited to bring with you is with Josh Bernoff. Josh is the author, co-author, editor, or ghostwriter of eight business books, He's published Writing Without Bullshit, which Toronto's Globe and Mail called A Strunk and White for the Modern Knowledge Worker. He was the co-author with my friend Charlene Lee of Groundswell, which was a Businessweek bestseller. His latest book, and the main subject of our discussion, is Build a Better Business Book, How to Plan, Write, and Promote a Book that Matters. We discussed with Josh the why and how of writing a business book some super valuable tips around how to position the book, how to get your book out there, the importance of an index, audiobooks, co-writing, and many other elements that can help a business book be successful. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a moment, please remember to go over and do a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Josh! Bernoff, my goodness. Uh, great to have you on my show. I, I followed your work. We've been connected through our wonderful mutual friend, Mitch, Joel, and several others on the, the wonderful writers group. Great to have you on my show. Josh, in your own words, who are you? Uh, I am a guy who helps authors to succeed. That's who I am in my own words. Um, I've done all sorts of things in my life. I spent 14 years in startup companies. I spent 20 years as an analyst at Forrester Research, but I'm primarily an author, editor, co-author, ghostwriter, anything associated with business books. That's what I want to help people with. So why did you get into business books, Josh? I mean, there's so many other books out there that sell a lot like novels and things, but why business books? Uh, well, to be fair about it, I, uh, you know, I, I had always wanted to write a book um, and I had had dreams of being a science fiction writer, which was unrealistic. I had spent all this time in business and I spent 10 years uh, as an analyst at Forrester Research and I was creeping up on the age of 50. And I thought, "Uh oh, if, if I don't write a book by the time I'm 50, who am I kidding? So I said to the CEO of Forrester, who I had a great relationship with, it's been really good working here, but it's time for me to leave. I want to go write books. And to his credit, he said, well, why don't you write books for us? And I said, well, that might work out. Charlene Lee and I have been talking about a book about social media. Charlene, of course, was Forrester's social media expert. And he's like, great, let's do that. And man, what a wonderful uh, way that was to get launched. So while working for Forrester, I wrote the first book. That's Groundswell came out, was uh, very successful. And that launched me. And I realized at that point that I love writing books more than anything else. And so everything since then has been an attempt to work on books as much as I could for the last 10 years of my, my 20 years at Forrester. And then for eight years that I've been on my own, books is my thing. Big hat tip to Charlene. She's yes. been on my show a few times. Uh, mm -hmm. A brilliant, brilliant woman. I could not possibly have had a better person to start with. 
So Josh, the idea of writing a book, um, certainly I'm familiar with the, the concept, the, you, you, I studied literature at university and the idea of writing my own book seemed always the thing to do. Is that still something that's a valid thought today? Do you think that individuals who say, I need to write a book should be doing it? And if they, if they are doing so or thinking so, what makes that right? Well, um, in the process of researching my own book on business books, Build a Better Business Book, I uh, surveyed over 200 business authors. And when I asked them, what was the main reason that you wrote a book? The number one reason was to uh, to share the knowledge that I had. And that generally is what animates people. They feel like they know something based on their experience or based on an idea that they've had that the rest of the world needs to hear about. And there is no better way to make an impact than with a book like that. But that doesn't mean that if you write the book, you will have the impact. Of course, there's an awful lot of other things that go into it. But uh, if your book is about a new idea, uh, powerful ideas about something that you've learned that you think the world needs to, to know, you can bend the way people think with a book. And it's really hard to have any other method that works quite as well as a book for doing that. So do you discourage some of the people that come towards you? Uh, in the end of the day, is are all reasons for writing a book a good one? I discourage all of them. <laughs> because, because they mostly have no idea what they're in for, yeah. right? And uh, I mean, when I talk about book ideas, I say your idea has to be big, that is, it has to have an impact on a significant number of people. It has to be right. That is, you have to have some proof that you're not just making stuff up. And most importantly, it has to be new because we don't really need a, the 20th book on email marketing. And so I push back on people's ideas. It's like, you know, oh, I've heard that before. And I have to keep pushing on them until they come up with something that really is new. Or, uh, you know, that's very interesting that you think that do you have any evidence at all for what you're describing? And if the answer is no, I'm just going to blather on about it for 40,000 words. Don't really need that book either. Uh, and the result is that some people get discouraged and good because I've saved them from a Hard huge end. amount of effort for something that won't matter. And some people are like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is important. And here's why it is important. And here's how I know I'm right. And I'm like, okay, you, I can help. Now we need to help shape that into something that's that's uh, that looks like a book. But at least you started with an idea that's worth doing. So yeah, I I I I help half the writers, and the other half I make them go away and consider the error of their ways. Mm. Well, there are many things I want to get into. But let's start with the fir first thing. When I first saw the name of your book when we mm -hmm. talked about it, mm -hmm. um, I, I saw build a better business book. Mm. And I was wondering to what extent, Josh, you perceive writing a book as also a way to build a better business. <laughs> well, the name of the book, that's just a coincidence. And as I started to search it in social media and in, in uh, Amazon, I'm like, oh, well, you search build a better business book you find things about building a better business that's not what i'm helping people with but uh authors don't succeed 
by selling books. Um, another way to put that is anyone who is actually making a lot of money selling books is making a whole lot of other money giving speeches or in some other way. Or is famous independently. Right, right. So uh, that means that you need to generate leads for your consulting business or you need to uh, develop a paid speaking business or you need to add credibility for your the company that you're you're working for there usually is some other goal here um i can't resist uh mentioning here uh you've had have you had joe polizzi on your your no, program no okay. but i know who joe is yeah okay yeah so joe is the content marketing expert basically uh one of the most prominent people talking about it and he told me that his inspiration was a 1957 diagram from Disney that showed, uh, you know, how the movies and the television shows and the comic books and the music and the characters and the theme parks all basically supported each other and circulated around. And they were all ways that Disney made money. Well, if you look at what Joe did with content marketing, including successful content marketing books, they had training and podcasts and and events and and lots of other ways to to monetize the ideas in the book. And the most successful authors are at the center of that sort of a thing where they have multiple ways to take their their prominence as the author of, of X, Y, and Z and turn that idea into into revenue in a in a lot of different formats. So if I hear you right, Josh, in that sense, it sounds like everything needs to be congruent and, and related together, as in the business you're running, the speaking, the the book, the podcast, everything should be highly related. Uh it it helps a lot if it is. So uh if you are, let's say that you're an expert in uh, social media marketing and you write a book about your experiences as a caregiver to someone who had a terminal disease which is that, meaningful to them but yeah, it doesn't oh, give yeah, them credibility sure, but but that's not going to help your business at all right nobody cares they may they may become interested in your book but what does that turn into it doesn't turn into business for you so yeah they're there and you know this this makes sense i think Authors have a persona, and that persona is, I am the most knowledgeable person about X, and that's what the book should support, is the idea that that you have written down the most important concepts about that same topic. Yeah, this speaks into the next question, which looks at this notion of better. Mm-hmm. What is better? And, and presumably the way to qualify that is around success, but what is success for you? Hmm. Now, I I think that's the way for for writers to think about this is better equals I've helped people. So Impact. if people can, if people read your book and they actually change, I'm going to change the way I think about strategy. I'm going to change the way I do leadership. I'm going to change the way I develop software. There's a lot of different possibilities, but they need to read your book and actually act differently as a result of it and if you generate that sort of success with the readers then you will generate success for yourself because what happens after that the person changes now they develop software a better way and then they 
they tell their friends and uh, and their people that they work with, you got to read this thing. That's the the way to do it. And then the word spreads that it's it, that it's successful. So that's that's what it all comes down to is can you help readers to solve the problems that they have? Sometimes I, I, I talk to like psychologists, they went into psychology because they had a psychological issue and then they become a psychologist to fix themselves. To what extent do you think that writing a better business book can help you fix yourself? Uh, unless you have serious confidence problems, this is not the way to fix your, <sighs> your psyche. Um, I have heard people say, you know, well, you know, I got to the end of the book, uh, and now I feel better about myself. I it's funny. I am there's a really talented woman who's who I edited her book with a co-author. And when we got to the end of the the manuscript being done, she was like, Let's write another one. <laughs> and I'm like, now wait, you have to publish and promote this one first. But it was clear that that had had encouraged her. But but I think more important is that when you write a book, you fix your ideas. Because you're going to have to think about who is this for and who is it not for. You're going to have to think about how much do you have to budget for this solution that I'm coming up with? Or what are the seven steps that people need to do? Or what people disagree with me and what are their counter arguments and how can I take them on? Or really challenging, are there any case studies that I can cite of people who've done what I said and it actually worked for them? And the result of all of that work is that you now have a bulletproof idea. You have an idea that's fleshed out in detail. And so it isn't, writing doesn't solve your personal issues so much as it solves your idea issues. That's what becomes bulletproof. If before that you were a uh, a slob, you're still a slob. If before that you were a, a tyrant, you're probably still a tyrant, but but at least as far as your ideas go, perhaps we can help you with that. Well, some self-reflection would be useful. <laughs> so one of the things that uh, really struck me reading your book, Josh, was this notion of first chapter, you need to speak to either fear or greed. Mm -hmm. And so reflecting on that, I was like, Ugh, I don't know how to do that. It feels like <laughs> being either a scoundrel or boring. <laughs> okay, I will react to that. Please so do. let's let's take let's take a simple thesis here. If they read your first chapter and give up, then you're not going to succeed. So you need the purpose of the first chapter is to get people to be interested enough to read the rest of the book. And there is so much noise out there that you really have no alternative but to tap into a strong emotion that the person has. Um, and that's why I talk about the first chapter being the scare the crap out of you chapter, and. I talk about the two ways to do that being fear and greed, but this is really a shorthand. So I uh, it's, that sounds really exploitive, but what does fear mean? Well, if you're talking about a danger, for example, um, if you're wasting too much time at work and that interferes with your concentration. Yeah. I want people to be afraid that if they keep doing that, they won't be successful. If you're writing a cybersecurity book, I want people to be afraid that if they don't take action, that they're going to suffer a data breach. Um, and what does greed mean? Well, greed basically just boils down to, if you do the stuff that it says in this book, you will be better off. You'll be more productive. You'll generate more revenue. You'll generate more leads. Your, your uh, people in your department will be more successful. 
somehow there's a plus there. And yeah, I don't have a problem with tapping into the idea that, yes, if you follow this stuff, then you'll be much better off. And if you don't, you're going to miss out. So fear and greed is just a shorthand for talking about that. Um, I hope that that's not too provocative for people, but it's just a way to think about that. You scoundrel, Josh. <laughs> um, obviously, being a marketer, I, I'm fully aware of that, the, the limits and, and, the, and the challenges with noise. I, one of the thoughts that I had behind that was, do you write what people need to hear? Do you write what people want to hear? Do you write what you believe? Because hmm. at some level, we're trying to tap into the reader's psyche. Is it is it what they want? Is it what they need? Is it what you believe? Hmm. So I don't think you want to write what people want to hear. I don't like books like that. It's like, well, I want to make a million, Josh. You know, I'm oh, greedy. No, no, no. I think this is what chat GPT does. It writes what people expect. And if you're like, you know, you, you can, if I tell you, you can make a million dollars, even though you probably can't, that's not really honest. That's I don't like that. So can you tell them what they need to hear? Well, yeah, but you have to have a positive that goes along with that. You know, you're, you're wasting half of your time at work. Maybe they need to hear that, but unless they follow that up with, and here's a way to to stop wasting time and be more successful, then you're just basically making people feel bad, and, and that's not going to be successful for them. Um, I definitely think you need to write what you believe. Um, you know, it's interesting. I I've been getting more ghostwriting proposals recently where people want me to ghostwrite a book for them, and I read some of these and I say. No, I can't do that because you want me to say stuff that I don't think is true. And I can't possibly successfully write about things that I don't actually believe. So you as a ghostwriter, you, mm-hmm. your own piece opinion makes it difficult for you to ghostwrite for somebody else, something you don't believe. I'd say impossible. Um, now, luckily for me, you know, you want to write about, marketing technology well i know enough about that to be able to understand the value of that and i can do that you want me but to also write... presumably josh you'd also be able to discern between a marketing technique that's full of shit or not yeah. going to work and some that does definitely um and i have pushed back i've in editing books i've had people write things and i said is that true and they're like well i don't remember i don't think it's actually literally true i'm like sorry you can't put that in there um so yeah, I want people need to stand behind those things. Um I I had a boss once, um really smart guy, and we had we were gonna try and use a, a marketing tactic that was a little shady. And he said, Well, here's my principle. Would you feel okay if everyone knew that you did this, if your mother knew that you were doing this? And I was like, No, I don't really think I would. And he's like, well, then you better not do it. Because in the end, if you lie in a book, whether it's about what you believe or about actual facts, you will get found out. Um, I'll just mention here, um, when people 
meet me in a social setting. Sometimes they say, oh, you're a writer. Do you write fiction? And I say, not on purpose <laughs> because, yeah. because I want everything I have in there to be true. And if it's not true, I made a mistake. Fair point. Like it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, this idea of the scoundrel speaks to the idea of pushing the the limits and, and making it more scary than it might actually be, for example, and, and finding that type of limit when we have so much noise out there to break mm-hmm. through, you sometimes need to push the limits of, of truth, if you will, or create a story that's a little bit bigger to scream louder. Mm. Nope. Good. <laughs> You're not going to get me to go there. Um, what you need to do is, you know, basically you believe something, you think this is true. You need to gather evidence. So what does evidence look like? Let's say you find somebody who tried the thing that you want to do and it worked out well for them. That's, that's evidence. You tell their story as a case study. Or let's say you find someone who did the opposite of what you suggested and it turned out badly for them. Okay, that's evidence too. Or someone has done an academic study or it, another book has a passage that's very credible and it's a it's somebody that everybody believes like Seth Godin or, or Daniel Pink. Yes, you quote those people. Um, there's always evidence. Now, it may you may be wrong, in general, if you're writing about things that everybody knows, that's boring and nobody wants to read that. But you should at least be able to create a plausible case that you are right. And if you don't believe what you're writing, it's going to be very difficult to be convincing. Um, I don't know. I'm There's not that many authors that I know that are scoundrels. There are none that I respect that are scoundrels. And so this idea you have of the scoundrel author is, I think, a lot rarer than you might think it is. Well, I, I especially think of the scoundrel marketer uh, who you know, writes an email title that has nothing to do with the content or you know, those type of <laughs> idiots well, that pollute our world. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I would say that it's much easier to, to be a lying faker in a 280-word email or a 30-second television commercial than it is to be one in a 55,000 word business book. Um, you, you won't be able to keep it up. And not only that, you'll publish it. And everybody will pick apart your arguments and show you're a faker, and then you'll be exposed to the world. So not so much of a problem for authors. All right. Well, Josh, let's look at the other side, um, the, the truth. Because mm-hmm. uh, truth, let's say, is the honest version. And uh, I have specific experience in writing a biography where some of the truth hurt others Mm -hmm. and so it was factually correct but not pleasant for others to hear Mm -hmm. you were talking before about what your mother wouldn't want you to know about or Mm -hmm. was a lie you know Mm -hmm. fake but what about truth well i i think painful truths need to be accompanied by some sort of a prescription for how to fix things um now if i was writing a book that was a biography maybe it's necessary to describe those truths in a way that isn't comfortable for everybody, but that's a different kind of book. I'm mostly considering uh, what you might call prescriptive books, books that identify a problem and suggest a solution. Um, And they don't tend to have that kind of ugliness in them. Um, 
it's interesting. The uh, there are often case studies about people who made mistakes, and occasionally you'll get those people to go on the record, but usually not. And so you end up writing and saying, "Well, once there was this person who tried this, and this is who shall name who shall name nameless." Yeah, and that that anonymized case uh, happens often. It's still important that it is a real person. You're not making it up, but but uh, you know there's there's no point in attempting to humiliate them um, unless it's been published somewhere else and you can reference it. They're probably going to have to be anonymous, right? Otherwise, libel. So it's <laughs> well, um, you're still telling the truth about the terrible thing that they did. Yeah, right. We just need to be prepared to back it up, but because. Um, yeah. So you, I mean, obviously we're talking about nonfiction, which is why truth yeah. seems to be an appropriate sort of moniker to be talking about. And yet, and you say, and I, I, I picked this one up and I, I have to find where I put the quote. It says, yeah. um, business books are about people and stories. It's a subtitle you have. Business, yeah. business books are about people and stories. Well, I say so is business. <laughs> it's true. Um well, I'm just in terms of books, I'm just trying to get people to understand that they need to put human stories in there. Uh, I, you know, I submitted my first book proposal to an agent when I was working at Forrester Research and I was mostly writing research reports. And the agent came back and said, I can't sell this. And I said, why not? And he said, business books are about people and stories and there's no people and stories in here. It reads like a research report. I was like, Oh, I can do that. So that was like a moment where I realized that we all understand that fiction books are about people and stories. And we all understand that business narratives, like, uh, you know, a biography of Elon Musk is going to be about the people he interacts and the stories about what happened. But somehow that goes out the window when people are writing a book, which is, you know, the 10 best con content marketing techniques. No, those those have to have people and stories in them too in order to make them readable enough that, that people don't just give up and throw them aside. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Well, it strikes me, though. Uh, so, Josh, I, I worked in yeah. a large organization, and the stories that I can tell kind of can be weaved in two ways. Mm -hmm. One is, oh, we did this great thing. You we need to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. The other one is more likely, well, it was we fucked up four times, uh, it was a disaster the fifth time and the sixth time we got lucky and it worked mm -hmm. out. So I can tell a story like fibbing type mm -hmm. of story, or I can tell a story that 
makes me look good. Or I can tell you a story that makes you want to do the same thing. But mm. it's very rare, especially if you're an outside person or a consultant or whatever. You actually know the shenanigans, the challenges, the real shit that went down underneath the exercise you successfully put out. I, I think it may not be as rare as you think. Perhaps not all of the detail, but the stories that tend to show up in business books, when they make sense, when they're most readable, it's uh, this company tried this, this person tried these, this, it didn't work. They had this problem. They tried this. It didn't work. They, they were on the verge of giving up. And then they said, let's, let's try this thing that nobody's ever tried before it worked. And then they had to figure out why and figure out how to measure it, you know? And, um, one of the things I find most humorous is often, you know, at the end of, of this, you tell this story, this dramatic story, it's got a, got a downturn and then a triumph at the end of it. And then you share it back with the, the, the corporate people at that company just to get approval to be able to get everything straight. And they're like, you can't say things, bad things happen in the middle. For example, I'm like, yeah, hell of a story. Things were great. And then we tried some things and then they were great after that. And that's nobody wants to read that. That has no drama to it. We all have problems and to be fair about them is crucially important. Um, so, yeah, I mean, every story has got to have some frustration in it or it isn't realistic. That's true. I mean, obviously, that's the nature of storytelling. Yeah. And I, I, I observe, though, that a lot of people that recount stories that haven't actually lived through it. So mm-hmm. your business cases you talk about, they're sometimes a, a step of too far away to understand what actually made it happen or what actually was the, 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 the grain in, in the ointment that made it not work at the beginning and wow. the challenges of politics and egos and all these other things, which are really hard to, they're a little abstract to construct in a book. Yeah. Well, that's another form of lying to smooth off all the rough edges and make everything sound like it's just, just really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that's not the way life is. And if, if, if you're advising people who are in big companies and you say, well, here's what this person had to do to convince their boss about this, or, you know, these are the corporate, where the corporate policies and this is how they had to evade those corporate policies to prove that this would work. It it sounds real because everyone's like, oh, yeah, I know what that's like. Yeah. Uh-huh. Rolling of the eyes. Like, oh, well, that guy. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, it's that that sort of thing is it, it, part of what you need to describe. And And let's be fair about it. If all of your stories were this person got tangled up in a bunch of corporate red tape. They tried a bunch of things that all failed because they didn't have enough vision and because their company undermined them. And as a result, they lived unhappily ever after. Nobody wants to read that. That's terrible. (laughs) Woe is me. Yes. All right. So, Josh, you got this chance to with a book while you're working at Forest with Charlene. Yeah. And you have a whole, I think it's a chapter on the employee author. Mm. And uh, you quote uh, a man who uh, was kind enough to blur my own book, Maurice mm. Levy, who I, I know very well. Mm. Um, and I think that his attitude seems very good. So writing 
while being an employee in a company, on the one hand, there's the boss of the employee and there's the employee. Give us some parameters for making that successful. Okay. So most important rule is don't hide it. Because there's so many problems that can happen from that. One is the you know you get toward the end and the company's like, actually, all of the intellectual property you create here belongs to us by by contract, so you can't publish that because it belongs to us. Hmm. Well, that's a lot of work wasted. Uh, and if you're going to publish things that will be embarrassing to the company or even that they haven't got an, any approval on, that's not going to work out either. So basically your objective as an employee is to say, this book will help the company. Uh, and usually it does. If you're in, you know, if you're in the part of the company that gives people marketing advice and you're writing a book about marketing, then the company will get known for that knowledge that you're sharing and you'll get to go out and give speeches about it, which will spread the idea further. Um, in fact, if you align your interest with the company, it can be very successful. I, I will tell you that at Forrester, where I uh, co-wrote three books and edited two other ones for other analysts, their public relations group was fantastic because they were always giving research information to reporters who loved hearing about it. So they were excited. The PR people were excited about promoting these books, and the result was really very effective um and that's that's it's hard to substitute for that um i i uh recently helped out a guy who's a head of uh, a research institute a medical research institute and his pr people had managed to get him interviewed and quoted in the new york times and the wall street journal and i'm like this is an awesome asset to have these people working with you uh the the last thing I think people need to think about, though, is what happens when you leave the company? Because everybody eventually goes on to a new job. And at that point, there's going to be some fighting about who has control of the intellectual property, which is something that has to get settled ahead of time. Um, and you, uh, you may need to have some kind of a sort of separation agreement about it. Um, when Char the perfect example is Groundswell that Charlene Lee and I worked on um, about six months after the book was published, she left Forrester. Um, and part of what happened as a result of that is that I got all the speeches because she wasn't there anymore, but she had to reconstruct the ideas with her own research uh, completely separately because our agreement was that Forrester owned all of the intellectual property and she was cut off from that when when she left and started her own business. So that's that you need to think about what will happen when you finally leave. Yeah, the divorce. Always good to think about the divorce before it's unhappy. Speaking. Yeah. Well, I, I want to get into the divorce scene or he's the co-author in a moment. But um, what about as a boss? You know, some guy uh, I run up to you. Hey, Josh, you're my boss. I'd like to write a book. Uh, about my experience in the company. I think I'm really great. I've got a personal brand. I really want to promote myself. Hey, Josh, you don't have one, but hey, stuff it. I want one. <laughs> I'm just imagining myself and the boss saying, go screw yourself, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but um, you know, 
usually people who are in a position to write a book have attained visibility already. So if you're known as the expert on, uh, let's say, uh, smart speakers or the expert on using AI uh, to do chatbots or something like that, um, you already probably have visibility. You've given speeches at conferences. You represent your company. And it makes sense for them to continue to invest in you and your image. So uh, the boss in that situation is not going to be be hit blindsided by this sort of thing. It's like an extension of, of what you're already doing. Um, and if you don't have that kind of visibility, then you probably don't have enough sort of grit, enough, enough real knowledge to be writing a book anyway. Well, my experience, I worked for L'Oréal for 16 years, mm -hmm. and I think there's also a European twist to the way that companies think about this thing and the idea of an individual as an employee becoming a star, having their own URL and all that. It's somewhat foreign to many types of management, I would say, in a fear and control type of space. Yeah, I have to say that is a it is a much more of an American phenomenon. It doesn't tend to happen in Asia and uh, from the European companies I've interacted with, it doesn't happen so well there either. Um, and so I, I don't really have a lot of experience advising people who work in companies in Europe and want to do this, but it certainly seems as if it would be a lot more challenging. Well, the, the, the call I have, I make is that as a boss, if you're listening to this, you need to get with the program. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that's my angle. Yeah, but culturally, that may be challenging. I mean, bosses have bosses too. So indeed, they um, do. Yeah. Um, what about what about co-writing, Josh? Sorry, what about co-writing with somebody mm -hmm. else? And how do you how do you deal with that? And and thinking about the divorce at the end, and mm -hmm. what are some of the parameters for choosing a co-writer? I uh, well, the most important thing is that you share a vision. Because you can't write two separate books. You have to write the same book. Um, and that vision could come from anywhere. I mean, in my book with Charlene Lee, it was basically her ideas. I was the writer and she was the person who had the strong ideas. By the time we got to the end, I had added my own ideas. But but that was where the vision came from. It came from her. Um, you also need to have a, a clear idea of how you will divide up the tasks and it's generally good if your skills are complementary, not similar. So uh, while Charlene was a good writer and has written a number of good books on her own, she just was so busy she did not have time to to do this. Whereas I had, I was a very good writer, and I had uh, I had made this arrangement to have the time to write it. So I was basically the writer; she was the idea person. That was a good way for us to divide up the tasks. I. Uh, you also might have, say, the back half of the book is about how to do this in corporations and the front half of the book is about how to do this in dealing with consumers. So maybe one's an expert on one part and one's an expert on the other part. Uh, the The other interesting thing is how to get to a, you know, how to, how to get to, to a conclusion. So... In the case of my working with Charlene, I would write chapters, then she'd review them, except a few chapters she wrote, and then I would review them. 
And that was a relatively efficient process. But if, if you have, let's say, two authors and an editor and everyone's reviewing what everyone else does, it you'd think that multiple people would be more efficient, but it's actually less efficient in that situation because of all the communication back and forth. So some sort of discipline about how you're going to get to a conclusion helps. I, I got to bring up one other thing here, which is that you need to design a plan and stick to it. So some authors are like, oh, well, I'll just write bits and pieces and glue it together. And that is, it doesn't tend to work well, but if you have a co-author, it's a disaster. So, so mm-hmm. you need to be like, okay, there's going to, chapter three is going to cover this. I'm going to write that. Chapter five is going to cover this. You're going to write that. And, you know, here's, here's how the review process will go. I've only co-written one book. And so my experience thinks about things like, well, on the cover, are we going to go by alphabetical order or first, <laughs> oh, you know, always important? Yeah, indeed. You know, that, that kind of stuff. And then on the back end, the promotion side, oh, well, I've got, you know, I got hundreds of thousands of followers. You've got only 10, you know, thousands. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, be useful at that end and the negotiation of the whole spectrum. Yeah, no, that's I uh, I can relate to that. I've had many conversations like that. Um, as far as whose name goes first, um, if it's two people who are relatively uh, unknown, then it you have to flip a coin or something. But in general, the most well-known person is the person whose name goes first because their name is likely to sell the book. Um, and, Brush off your ego and let it happen. Uh, well. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if I was going to, I mean, when Charlene and I wrote her name went first, after that book became a bestseller, the next book I I collaborated with Ted Shadler, but I was a, a best-selling author and he wasn't. So my name went first. So that's, that's well, plus the your, way these things Your go. name begins with the B. Just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah. Josh, what are the, I mean, I've written a few books and, um, and one of the areas uh, I've always struggled with is the selling part. I mean, perhaps because I don't have a fearful or enough greedy uh, <laughs> stroke, you might say, but PR agencies for book writers, what is the secret sauce for getting a good PR agency? Gosh, I wish there was a secret I could just reveal. Um, you, they all promise, you know, I have these relationships with these journalists and I, I can get you on 27 podcasts and whatever it happens to be, but, but it's a combination of legwork and strategy. So the first question is, can you actually develop a strategy together? Uh, and that's, that's helpful. I mean, when I do this, I've done this so many times that I have plenty of PR ideas myself, but many people don't have that knowledge of promotion. Um, and then it's a question of, you know, okay, you're going to reach out to, to 116 podcasts. Well, how are you going to do that? Uh, and uh, how are we going to line things up if, if someone happens to agree to it? So it's, it's, uh, I think uh, the, I have this acronym, a sort of initialism in the, in the book PQRST that, that are five things for people to think about. P is positioning. Who's the book for and what is it? What problem does it solve? Q is the question. What's the question that it, that it actually is going to help that reader with. And then the RS and T are the tactics. Um, 
R is reach. How are you going to get uh, reach? S is spread. How are you going to get them to spread the idea after they've heard about it? And T is timing because it's really helpful to take all of this activity and compress it into a couple of months around the book launch um, so that people hear about it over and over again. Yeah, there's, there, there is, you know, no first time, second time. You're, 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 when you launch, it's new. I mean, I think that some books can sort of maybe do a launch over one year. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. But basically, you're better off when it's hot and new, right? I would certainly agree with that. But one of the things I'm learning is that some of this outreach takes a lot more months than I thought it would. Um, so, I mean, we're do, we're conducting this interview about two months after the book came out, but that's what happens is some of the, some of the things take a little bit longer and you just have to keep, keep at it, keep, keep having the, uh, the persistence to continue to, to seek out those opportunities. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, there's the get on the bestseller list and have that sort of spike sale. Mm-hmm. And then there's the long tail mm-hmm. where you sort of, you're just trying to do something, you're having impact over time. And if someone's listening to this and likes what they hear, maybe they will do something. They will spread the word, Josh, hopefully you never know. Um, another area of interest for me was this idea of the audiobook. So you write about this and you basically suggest it's best for you as the author to narrate, except if. <laughs> okay. If you have a heavy accent and it's difficult for people to understand you, don't do that. If you're not willing to spend what's probably 12 or 14 hours in the studio, a lot of people just don't have the time to do that. Um, and I don't know quite how to put this, but if you're boring, you shouldn't narrate an audio book because people are going to have to listen to your voice for, for hours and hours. And the the benefits are when a person is listening to an audio book by the author, even if it's not perfect, right? They're, they're not a trained actor, but they know which parts of the book are important and what's dramatic and what's sad and what's exciting uh, and the ability to infuse that emotion into the audiobook makes the experience for the listener, I think, a lot better. Um, I also have heard of people who've had actors do their audiobooks, and it's like there's a keyword and they mispronounce it throughout the entire audiobook, and it's like <laughs> that is enough to make you want to off yourself. It's a terrible no thing. No kidding. I I was shocked when one of my publishers just without even asking me just went and gave it to an actor without asking me whether I wanted to. And uh, that's so, but I, the last question um, that I wanted to talk about, well, actually I have another one after that, but with regard to audio um, and a few of my friends have talked about the AI components. So the, the, the possibility of robots writing the robots translating, and even in one case, robots doing the audiobook this is a big no-no or do you think there's a future gosh i hope there's not (laughs) i we're killing humanity no i think it's a question of these are creative activities and uh humans are better at creative activities than robots are that's still true and i think that's going to be true forever so uh, if you think the job of the narrator 
is to say all of the words in the book, then it wouldn't matter if it was an AI narrator or not. Uh, but sorry, that's the American pronunciation narrator. So, but but uh, the that is going to never be able to match the emotion that the person has of actually explaining it. You don't listen to that and imagine the author on the other end talking to you and telling you what you need to do. Uh, so, and that, that the same is sort of true about the writing. I, I recently uh, surveyed a bunch of authors and found out that they're using AI tools in a number of different ways to help to, you know, get straw man arguments against their, their argument or to summarize transcripts and stuff like that. But no self-respecting author is going to actually let the AI write the book because the results will be boring and witless and nobody wants to read a boring witless book. Yeah. There's also something uh, deeply personal. Whenever I listen to an, uh, an author narrated book, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I get to know the author really you can you can hear that emotion. Hearing it through an actor, it's I got the words. I maybe get the emotion, but I don't feel like I know the author because I'm obviously going to pay attention. And and something else you do write about, Josh, which I, I I enjoyed is this idea of trying to be the most interesting person. How does one become the most interesting person? I.e., not boring. How do you become an interesting person? I don't know how you become an interesting person. I think, uh, you know, I used to, I'll, I'll just tell an anecdote here, which I think will help, which is um, when I was an analyst, you would, you would, uh, I was happened to be an expert on the television industry. So I'd go into some big TV company like NBC or, or Comcast, and I'd give a presentation about, my perspective on the market. And at the end of it, there was a portion that I got to know as stump the analyst because they'd, you'd have 15 minutes at the end and they'd say, how do you see HDTV affecting this? Or how does, how do you see this being different once there's more people doing streaming and you needed to have an answer, even though you hadn't researched it's that. live. Yes. Then you couldn't be and sometimes I'd say, I don't know, but, but in general, if you say that enough, they're like, what the hell? Ooh, you thought you were an expert. So how do you how do you put yourself in that position? Well, as a researcher, you need to constantly be on the lookout for new things, new ideas, new concepts, new technologies, and be thinking, well, what do I think about that? You needed to at least have some sort of a thought about that. And that is what made you an interesting person was because no matter what it was, you had been thinking about it. And I'd, I'd go into these meetings and people would say, what do you think about this? Sometimes I'd say something and they'd be like, no, that's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. I'm like, oh, see, I'd learned something there. Hmm. Maybe this is different than I thought. Or I'd hear a question I hadn't heard before. And I'd say, I don't know, but I'll find out. And then I'd come back two months later and say, oh, well, remember that question you asked? This is what I found out about that. So it's a question of being constantly curious and never giving up that quest for new information about what you're supposed to be knowledgeable about. Yeah, I, I, I make, it makes me think of critical thinking, mm. a, a deeper curiosity that mm. just goes beyond skin level, and then general knowledge as well. The ability to connect dots and, and come up with interesting angles that 
aren't so obvious and, and, and move away from mainstream. Well, I am a smart ass. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what does that mean? It means that whatever you think, I think, well, how can I take that off in a different direction? And that I think is that you often find really interesting things when you do that. Sometimes you come up with really dumb ideas and people tell you that, but but if you're always going in the same direction that that people expect you to, then why are you even there? Right. So, That's so what my, AI could do, and you don't you don't need to be an AI. My my answer to my own question, which is have self-awareness. Because <laughs> if if you want to be an interesting person, all right, where are you? Who are you? And if if those answers aren't good, then then you're gonna have challenges becoming interesting. Anyway, that was my final thought. Last question. Josh, yeah. um, I, and it's a sort of a weedy answer or weedy question with regard to writing books. Why is an index so important to you? <laughs> well, I'll see if I can make this have some sort of cosmic significance for you. Love it. Okay. Excellent. Okay. I'm going to smoke my joint. And... <laughs> okay. Okay. So, okay. So I am, it, it, first of all, the reason that books still need indexes is because people want to have the opportunity to go back and say, where was that part about the guy at, at Unilever and what he did or whatever it happens to be and go find that stuff. I, uh, and I am the rarest of authors who actually is like, I love doing indexes, which, you know, that's, that's like having a foot fetish. People are like, really, <laughs> really? You love <laughs> doing indexes. Well, no, but I... I do. And the reason is, first of all, the the books I work on are very modular this piece is about this. This piece is about this. They're not all jumbled together. So the way to do an index is to look at each portion and say, if I were looking for this piece, what would I be looking it up under? What concepts does this talk about? It's about marketing, but it's also about integrity. And it's also about uh, about broadband. Okay, so so I'm going to put it in the index under all of those things. Um and the software will make sure that after you've said this section's about this, this section's about that, it it puts that all together and puts the page numbers on it. So that's just a technical element. But this idea of thinking of your book as like a database of lots of different concepts and ideas and people and stories and figuring out how you could direct people who one, looked up one of those things to where in the book they would find it, I think that's interesting. But... Again, that's just a weird fetish I have. Well, so. it sounds like the guy who reads encyclopedias or dictionaries while on the yeah. pot. Right. I certainly love books that have indexes, and I always feel uh, a little ashamed because I didn't do an index on my last book, and I, I was like, but I don't have that uh, needy wordiness or the sort of nerdiness. I think I need to hire <laughs> a Josh Burnoff. Josh been wonderful having you thank you so much for sharing your time and your passion for writing business books i think it's a a very worthy uh adventure a very worthy need yeah. and and you've opened up my eyes to some of the things and specifically this idea of creating fear and greed or feeding the fear or the greed at the beginning yeah. which is gonna and i will tell you off the record a after uh, how it is specifically has changed the na name of my new book and thank you. So how can people follow your work, hire you for ghostwriting, check out your, your writings, buy your book? <laughs> okay. Don't try and hire me as a ghostwriter. I'm, I'm 
got more projects that are than I can handle, but Fair. I can do lots of other these other things. If people, the most important thing for people who want to get all of this stuff boiled down into one place is to check out the book called Build a Better Business Book. Um, you can get it on Amazon or you can go to my my uh, site at burnoff.com slash books. That's B-E-R-N-O-F-F dot com slash books. And that that will direct you to the places where you can get it. Um, and if people are interested in following my ideas, I, in addition to the weirdness of doing indexes, I have another weirdness, which is that I publish a substantive blog post every weekday. So go to burnoff.com slash blog, uh, subscribe to the blog there, and you'll get a constant feed of of stuff about books and authors and writing and content and and media and so on. Um, so that's that's the way people can connect with me. And yeah, I mean, if people want to hire me, there's a form there, but I'm mostly interested in helping people to find out about the things that, that will help them as they consider becoming an author. Great credit to you, Josh, for your determination and your discipline. Pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much, Josh. Thanks. It's really been great to be here. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
woman I'm a convinced man me to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready for an arrest I'm a convinced man in the arms of a Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.